0: Who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, American. Happy Thursday. We've got a great show coming up for you here today at John Solomon Reports. At the top of the hour, we're going to bring in Congressman Andrew Clyde. He is one of the new appropriators in the House Republican majority, and he has been the architect of how. Republicans are going to use the power of the purse to force Joe Biden to shrink government, enforce the immigration laws at the border, and root out corruption and weaponization in our law enforcement agencies. He has been building a really comprehensive plan that has the confidence of people like Speaker Kevin McCarthy and so many others definitely going to learn a lot from him today on the approach where they go. And I know a lot of people are frustrated that because in December Senate sat at Republican leader, Mitch McConnell cut a deal with the Democrats to force $1.7 trillion of spending down American throats, which basically took the 2023 fiscal budget off the table for House Republicans to do anything with. Republicans can only really get started this spring and summer and force change in time for the fall budget that takes effect on October 1st. One of the big moments in that debate that we'll talk to Congressman Clyde about is the debt ceiling, which will probably take place in May and June, just before the government runs out of money. This man has, he's on the right committee, he's the architect of a lot of the how to use the power of the purse to make policy changes, and you're going to really enjoy that. Then in the second part of the show, we're going to have a fresh interview with FBI whistleblower Steve Friend. As you know, we introduced him to you about two, three, four weeks ago. He's the agent who blew the whistle on significant civil liberty violations that he said he witnessed while working on the January 6th committee. This included trying to pad numbers, trying to use tactical SWAT teams to arrest people on minor misdemeanor charges. And opening investigations on people without a proper predicate. The reason we're talking to him is that yesterday the House Judiciary Committee did its first interview with him and he provided a tremendous amount of new information. I think today you're going to hear something interesting that we didn't cover in our first interview with Agent Friend, and that is that he believes that all the ideological initiatives that the Justice Department is imposing on the FBI are causing a quota system for the FBI agents to go out and find crimes to hit quota numbers rather than to simply investigate crimes that actually occurred. It may explain why they were ramping up all of the domestic terrorism investigations, trying to get as many associated with January 6th. He says it's going on in other places. And he has an incredible anecdote, a really powerful anecdote, where he was going to open a criminal case on someone and he was told to wait two months until the new fiscal year Came because the statistic wouldn't count towards the new quota and they already had met their quota for the current year. They delayed a criminal prosecution, a criminal arrest in order to manipulate their numbers for these quota systems. That is a powerful story and one that I think you'll enjoy to hear. Now, before we get to those really great guests, and I'm really excited about them, I want to run a couple headlines by you because I think they're really important. The first is in the State of the Union address last week and ever everywhere he's gone since, Joe Biden has been patting himself on the back saying, I've been reducing the deficit. I got the deficit down $1.7 trillion in two years. That's the biggest drop in history. Well, that's because it was ramped up to the largest number in history. But his efforts to portray himself as a debt slayer, a deficit cutter, took a major blow of credibility last night. Why? The nonpartisan, Congressional Budget Office revealed that the path that Joe Biden has put this country on with all of its spending, all of its outlays, all of its commitments will balloon the deficit to a oh, to nearly 2 trillion dollars a year average over the next decade basically taking us over 50 trillion dollars in debt before we get to 2033 Joe Biden's entire ruse of deficit cutter just got uh, the whistle blown on it by the nonpartisan congressional budget office that is a pretty big important we had a great story on that from my good colleague ben Whedon. go check that out on the website at just or obviously in your app the just the news app from apple that you can download from the apple and android smartphone stores all right one other thing that i want to turn to before we head out for a break and then to our incredible interviews we do have some great interviews today there's been a lot a tremendous amount of debate in this country about environmentalism and climate change and caring about people. Democrats say they're the party of good environment. They're the party that really cares for people. And on the flip side, of Republicans say, listen, no, we're the party of environment. We had one of the greatest conservation laws ever passed under President Trump. Ronald Reagan solved the ozone hole caused by chemicals. I was eating a hole into the ozone layer. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt, another Republican, gave us the national park system. So both have been debating, but there is no debate about one thing. And that is that the extraordinary train crash that occurred in East Palestine, Ohio, which has put an enormously painful burden on this small community on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. Well, it has left an enormous trail of destruction of toxic chemicals, dead foxes, dead fish, people not knowing whether they can drink their water or go back to their homes or use bottled water. And all throughout it, the Biden administration has really not lifted a significant finger to show compassion or concern to address or answer questions. In fact, a week into the crisis, the transportation secretary, the same guy that got criticized for not doing enough on airline delays over the holiday season and even until last summer, Pete Buttigieg, right, openly gay cabinet member, well, he said... On Monday, when the residents of East Palestine were demanding answers, can we go back? Was it safe to drink our water? What are these reports of dead fish and dead animals? Should we be concerned? You know where Pete Buttigieg was? He was hundreds of miles away giving a speech on safety. Now, not the safety of rail cars, not the safety of the drinking water or the air in East Palestine that had been affected by this horrific Norfolk Southern crash. He was talking about the safety that woke activists want to achieve by ensuring that there's racial parity in construction contracts for major public transportation projects. That's right. He's talking about wiring contracts to make sure that there's an equal proportion for whites and blacks and Hispanics and Asians. I mean, that's not a bad cause, but it certainly doesn't seem to be as important as the pressing crisis in Palestine. And as you heard yesterday with Congressman Bill Johnson on this show, there's enormous frustration that Buttigieg is not up to the job. He's dropped the ball on every transportation crisis come his way, starting with the airlines. And he's been a wall through most of the response in East Palestine. And the frustration is growing not only beyond Republicans who always want to attack a Democratic administration or a Democratic rising star like Pete Buttigieg used to be before he became transportation secretary. It's also coming from Democratic and liberal quarters. And let me give you a couple examples. The Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania was only a few miles from the border, says he was kept in the dark. His administration wasn't consulted. They didn't know about the control burn. There were all these unilateral decisions. And he said, while the regulation of the railroad industry is largely the purview of our federal partners, guess what? We're going to start taking direct action here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We're going to start to take control of the state because the feds haven't done a good enough job. Now, you heard what Congressman Bill Johnson, a Republican, said, saying that Joe Biden has surrounded himself with people that are even less with faculties than he has. That's a fun jibe, political jibe, jab, I guess you could say. But the environmental hypocrisy here is not lost on environmentalists that used to applaud Joe Biden and the Biden administration for its climate policies. What? Aaron Brockovich, who was one of the most famous activists and one of the most greatest toxic incidents in American history, she tweeted out yesterday, that the response in East Palestine by the federal government is why people don't trust government. You cannot tell people that there have been and continues to be hazardous pollutants contaminating the environment while at the same time saying all is well. She called out the Biden administration for its hypocrisy. This incident, I predict, is going to be a significant setback for Joe Biden and the Green Movement. All of the verbiage, all of the promises, all of the bluster, All of the wrap yourself in green, green, green has been exposed to be hypocritical, at least as it comes to the poor people in East Palestine. So many things. It took a week for the feds to even know it was on the train. They didn't do the proper consulting about the controlled burn. They still don't know why. The rail car was on fire for 20 miles, an axle burning on fire, and none of the sensors, none of the security equipment, caught what was going on. And oh, by the way, the railway that's involved in this tragic crash, Norfolk Southern, guess who owns a big piece of it? The major investment firm BlackRock, reportedly owns 6%. BlackRock is the leader of the ESG movement in the investment world. That's the environmental social governance plan that's trying to get climate change into all corporate strategies and fossil fuels out of America. Well, Maybe it should just manage its own portfolio and ensure that the companies that already is invested in do a better job protecting the environment and people. That's a question that's coming up a lot in the last 24 hours. So tomorrow morning, Nick Javis and I are going to have a big story on the site that's going to put all this together. for I want to give you a little early part of it because I think East Palestine is going to be Uh, extraordinary moment that shakes some of the environmental movement away from President Biden. Maybe he gets to reconsider. Maybe it was more rhetoric than reality. Certainly in the case of this, there's been a delayed, bumbling, failed response that not only has angered the residents of East Palestine, but environmentalists, Democratic governors, Republican governors. It is another example, like the Afghanistan withdrawal that was bungled, the China supply balloon, the inflation, the baby formula shortage. This administration, time and time again, when it's supposed to rise to the occasion of a crisis, seems to falter under the weight of that crisis. And I think that is a pretty significant revelation to consider. All right, we're going to take that quick commercial break. When we come back, Congressman Andrew Clyde, followed by the FBI whistleblower, Steve Friend, back to back right after this. House Nutrition, and of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off.
1: As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career? Be Continued
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. We have has spent a lot of time in the last year at Just the News beginning to expose a massive ecosystem that's been built by private liberal groups and the United States government under the leadership of Joe Biden to censor your opinions, to regulate speech, to do the things that our founding fathers never, ever intended the U.S. government get involved in. Well, our next guest is on the front lines of this Very big and epic fight. It really is going to shape the future of America as we know it. And he has co-sponsored a piece of legislation called the Elon Act that is the first major piece of legislation trying to rein in big tech companies and their collusion with the federal government affecting our speech. He is Congressman Andrew Clyde from the great state of Georgia, and he joins us right now. Congressman, good afternoon. Great to be with you.
2: Well, good afternoon, John. Great to be with you, too. Thanks for uh, the invitation.
0: I am so excited. You and Congresswoman Bobert have put together the ELON Act. I love the, the acronym. It's uh, pretty fun. But a real opportunity to start auditing the federal dollars that's going to big tech. What's it really for? What's its implications on liberty? Tell us why this is so important in the early reaction to the legislation.
2: Well, you know, John, who would ever have thought that the FBI would be paying big tech companies uh, you know, for their quote advice or their counsel uh, to the tune of millions upon millions of dollars. Just the FBI alone paid Twitter $3.4 million between October 2019 and February 2021. And what they're doing is what the government cannot do directly. And that is they are doing government by proxy in their, their censorship by proxy, I should say. And... Um, And this is 100% a violation of the Constitution. You just can't do this sort of thing. You know, the Supreme Court has been very, very clear in its pedigree over the over over the last uh, 200 years, in that you cannot do um, uh, you 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 cannot do um, or what what you can't do directly. You may not also do indirectly. That's the whole thing. And they're doing it indirectly. Uh, and the Supreme Court has just put their foot down on that. And here the government is trying to, um, to censor your speech and my speech. And they are paying um, social media companies for uh, their information. And, um, and the Elon Act puts a, a big uh, one-year moratorium on any payments from the FBI to Big Tech. And it also exposes uh, the collusion between Big Tech and the Department of Justice. Um, it's a great piece of legislation, and I'm happy that uh, Representative Boebert introduced it with a whole lot of us as co-sponsors.
0: Yeah, it is such an important piece of legislation. A lot of people, both in the House and Senate, are excited about it. And there's even some Democrats now, I think, beginning to wake up and say, listen, this is not the America. If we're going to be liberals, we believe in free speech. I think there's a growing awareness that this is going to become an important solution to a problem that's been incubating maybe in darkness. A lot of us we didn't see it until recently with the good work that the congressional committees, the oversight committees and others have done. I want to walk through the evolution on this because we spent a lot of time going through Homeland Security documents, FBI documents, the Louisiana lawsuit, which is such an important instigator of good information. It seems as though it began with some ad hoc conversations between federal agencies asking and outsourcing censorship desire to big tech. Then there is this more formalized creation of the Election Integrity Partnership for private groups, all liberally lined, now carrying out the work for the federal government. And now it seems to be moving into a very scary place, which is long-term creating algorithms through artificial intelligence to actually create the censorship in real time with no human intervention so that the government can get the censorship at Watts but have no fingerprints on it. How concerned are you that there seems to be a fast track towards AI implementation of this censorship machine?
2: Uh, John, that's incredibly nefarious, and I think you laid it out really well um, as to it Exactly the way that these, the three-letter agencies in our federal government uh, have been moving to censor the speech of the American citizen. And, you know, that's our First Amendment right. We never, ever, ever allow that. That's what makes America so amazing. But when the government can put their foot down on what you and I can say, what you can say on this radio program, or what, what you know, you name the conservative outlet that can uh, have their voice silenced, through social media, then we truly have moved into the socialist and the communist realm of government. And that is not what America is about. That's why I'm uh, very happy that I'm also on the Appropriations Committee, and I'm also on the subcommittee for uh, um, the Justice Department on um, um, GJS, uh, Commerce, Justice, and Science, And we actually will be able to um, have a deep, deep dive on the Justice Department and see how they're spending their money. Because obviously you've got almost $3.5 million here going to big tech from the FBI. In my opinion, that's $3.5 million they
0: don't need. They don't need now. They don't need in the future. Yeah, and the FBI could have maybe put it to use on a better crime fighting solution.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Other than silencing your and my free speech and, and every law abiding American citizen out there, their free speech, because they don't happen to like the way um, that we want to talk. You know, that our our ideals are not their ideals. Our policy is not their policy. And so uh, they want to uh, silence us. And It's not going to happen. We are not going to allow that. We're going to expose it. And then all, we're going to make them pay a price for it too. Um, and that, yeah, and that price is going to be their budget. It's the only thing they listen to, John. It's the only thing they listen to.
0: The power of the purse. It's always been the greatest tool that the Constitution gave the House. And we're really seeing folks like you on the Appropriations Committee and others really beginning to shape how that will fix a lot of the problems that we've been forced to endure over the last couple of years. The Holman rule, I know you've talked about that before on the show. A lot of great tools. Is there a moment where Americans will sort of get a sense of what sort of 2024 budget, what it will look like, and where some of the biggest purse string solutions have been implemented? How is that process playing out in the Appropriations Committee?
2: Well, we've already agreed to a maximum top line number, and and that is the fiscal year 22 budget. All right. And honestly, uh, in order to maintain our defense, and that top line number in discretionary funds includes defense. But we're not going to be cutting defense. You know, we're going to be looking at making it more efficient, but we're not going to be cutting defense. Uh, So, therefore, in order to maintain a a fiscal year um, 2023 top or 2022, rather, top line number uh, and maintain defense, then we're going to have to be looking at more like a fiscal year 2019 or maybe 2018 number or maybe less for the non-defense discretionary. And that is the Department of Justice falls right in line with that. Uh, And um, I'm excited to be involved in that. In fact, uh, this past week, I've been going through the the latest um, uh, report that came out in 2023 for fiscal year 2023 and going through that to see where we can begin. And uh, it's exciting, honestly.
0: And it is very epic to see the United States Congress already have an agreement that we're not going to go up in spending next year. That hasn't happened in a very, very long time. So knowing that that's already occurred, that'll be the first major reversal we've seen in the reckless spending decades. How important is it that Democrats begin to realize we have to operate in a budget. They have always said, ah, oh, the deficit doesn't matter, debt doesn't matter, we'll get there someday. But it seems as though this moment now, they're going to be faced with the reality that there is no give on this. we are going to have to live on a 2022 spending diet.
2: That's right. And, uh, um, John, we have to be fiscally responsible. We as a nation cannot continue down this path of deficits, deficit, deficit, and more deficit spending. When our our debt continues to grow, we've got a budget fight here coming up in just a little bit. Uh, But the whole focus of this has got to be um, being responsible with the money, the taxpayer's money, not our money, the taxpayer's money. You and I have to live on a budget, a budget that balances or a budget that, that we spend less than we earn. And our government as a nation has to do that, too. So we've got to get to that point. And we will get to that point under a Republican majority.
0: Very exciting moment in American history. And I think a lot of people are cheering this on. They're going to be excited. One of the big promises why I think so many Americans decided to put Republicans back in control of the House. And we're seeing it now unfold before our eyes. Important stuff. I want to turn to one more part of the cancel culture censorship machine, the direct censorship of Opinions and speech is well-documented now. There's a growing recognition that federal agencies have been involved with liberal groups to also thwart advertising dollars and support dollars to conservative organizations. So basically censoring through their power of the purse, going to advertisers, scaring them away. There's some pretty big revelations you see now, AT&T kicking off Newsmax. This is an area that I think we're just beginning to understand. There is a whole ecosystem operating. Will Congress delve into that attack on ad dollars in cable access that maybe conservatives are also undergoing right now?
2: Oh, John, we have to. We absolutely have to. I mean, you have this entity out there, the Global Disinformation Index, you know, which is a British organization with two affiliated U.S. nonprofit groups that are feeding blacklisted information um, of ad companies with the intent to defund or shut down these websites for, potentially, for, for peddling potential disinformation. Um, this group received uh, over $300,000 from two State Department entities and yeah, yeah, more here we have more three-letter agencies giving our hard-earned taxpayer dollars to liberal nonprofit groups to do what the government can't really do in and of itself. Um, here we are; they are they are doing indirectly uh, what they are prohibited from doing directly. Again, a violation of our constitutional rights, and the Supreme Court has said that time and time again. I mean, they even identified the 10 riskiest news outlets uh, for disinformation, you know, ones that are like Newsmax, American Spectator, The Federalist, uh, you know, One America News uh, and the New York Post, The Blaze, The Daily Wire. And I'm sure Real America Voice is just like probably number 11 or
0: 12. (laughs) Um, uh (laughs) Oh, yeah, they're scratching at all of us. It's it's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy what's going on. Early on, we were able to get some data from the 2020 elections censorship machines, and Justin News was individually identified on there as a target. And I'm starting to think now, as we think through this, beyond the constitutional issues, when you start going after somebody's livelihood or the possibility of their commerce You may also be getting involved in the interference of free trade in America, another right that we've always so enjoyed. It seems like there are multiple places for fighting this cancel culture through the wallet that haven't been explored before. But free commerce seems to be at stake here if you're trying to scare away someone's ad dollars or or sponsorship dollars.
2: Yeah, that's really, really serious because here you're talking about people's livelihoods and people's livelihoods, what they've worked for all their life. And, uh, you know, that's really, really super serious business here. And um, when when you start messing with that, not just our liberties, but our lives uh, and, and how we make our living, um, that is absolutely unacceptable. You know, all forms of government by proxy censorship are completely unacceptable. There's another phenomenal example of it. This is something else that has to be shut down. You know, the state we're gonna look at the State Department too and the Appropriations Committee and what they're giving. I have seen I have seen troves of information so far uh, in the the money that they're giving. I mean you name it, uh, you know, drag queen shows in this country and in that country and uh, I mean it's it's unconscionable that the taxpayers hard earned dollars goes to fund this. And then on top of it we borrow money to do it. Um, with, an, with seemingly an endless line of credit. Uh, but, uh, but this is something that appropriations we're going to tackle. Um, and we're going uh, to make sure that this kind of money doesn't go out again. And, because they won't have this kind of money. They won't have it. It's the, it's the only thing they listen to is when you cut their budget. And the Article One authority of Congress uh, is the power to do that, the power of the purse, and I'm excited to be on the uh, Appropriations Committee that has that final say in what they get and what they don't get. Um, so, again, you know, that was part of the speaker fight in, in putting conservatives on these committees to, um, to help the legislation at the very front end when it is created to be more what the American conservatives uh, who are fiscally responsible need in order to vote for a piece of legislation.
0: You're starting to see a much more clearer distinction between the two parties. The uniparty concept is fading really fast because now there's a real imprint of what House Republicans and what conservatives and what fiscally responsible Americans stand for. So different from what we've endured over the last two decades. I want to turn to another subject because you are an extraordinary champion of the Second Amendment. And there are so many things going on, particularly at the ATF, that are small little derisions, small little chinks out of the freedoms that we've always enjoyed under the Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment, particularly. Tell us a few of the things that you're working on and keeping an eye on that that concern you.
2: Well, uh, number one on that list is the ATF pistol brace rule. You know, on January the 13th, they came out, signed this rule. Uh, that basically made any pistol with a brace, uh, and it, it reclassified it as a short-barreled rifle, and, and it, that would mean it would be an unregistered short-barreled rifle. So they gave people from the date of the publication in the Federal Register, which was January the 31st, they gave uh, folks 120 days to register their unregistered short-barreled rifles or or um, support brace pistols. Really, is what they are. They're not unreg- they're, they're not um, short-barreled rifles. But the ATF is, is uh, laying down that new regulation. In fact, what they're really doing is they're creating new law. They're redefining a definition, and, in, um, and they have exceeded their authority to do that. Congress makes laws. The ATF does not make laws. They enforce the law. They're, they're the executive branch. They're not the legislative branch. And so um, we are going to attack that in three different ways. Uh, the first is a, a piece of legislation that I introduced. Which was called the Short Act, and um, that is basically uh, eliminates the entire uh, short-barrel rifle and short-barrel shotgun from the National Firearms Act. It would take, NF- it would take ATF out of the um, uh, of the. It would remove their ability to um, have authority over short-barrel rifles and short-barrel shotguns. They would simply be reclassified as just regular firearms with no need for any specific registration at all. So that would be the Short Act. It's been introduced already. Uh, Senator Roger Marshall and Senator John Kennedy are introducing or have introduced rather on the Senate side the the very uh, same act. So we're both from the House and the Senate going after it. And then the second element is called a um, Congressional Review Act Joint Resolution of Disapproval. And um, I'm waiting to to introduce that because we have to wait until uh, this rule is actually noticed to Congress and and Congress recognizes receipt of it. I believe that will happen either this week or early next week. Uh, But we have 142 Republican co-sponsors on this uh, Congressional Review Act resolution of disapproval because Congress can strike down, they have the authority to strike down every rule that the executive branch creates. And we do it through the CRA, through the Congressional Review Act. And once we get that into into the House, uh, once it's filed and it's voted on, I believe it will go rather quickly because with 142 co-sponsors, that's you know well over half the Republican conference. Um, and then the Senate, I think, will follow suit very quickly after that. And we could take this rule down through both houses of Congress, um, eliminating or, or voting down the rule. And then it would have to go to the president's desk. And then the third way we fight it here is why I'm on the Appropriations Committee. It's called um, uh, a limitation amendment. Basically, in the 2024 budget, uh, we put a line item in there that says no money can be used to implement uh, this particular rule. And when we do that, then the rule is null and void. It ceases to exist because if you can't spend any money on enforcing it or even you know, dealing with it at all in any way, shape, or form, any way, shape, or form, then it eliminates the rule, and uh, that would have to be done in every appropriation going forward. But um, I think that that will that will give us time for the legal aspect of um, of this to to play through the courts. I'm very, very confident the courts will eventually strike it down, as they did the bump stock rule that ATF created in 2017, but it took six years to do it so this would happen much more quickly and so that's why I'm leading the fight on on these uh, three initiatives right here
0: yeah they're so important and we got to keep people up to speed on all of the quick developments this administration moves quickly the Biden administration is moving on so many fronts and so many of those moves really affect the core liberties that we've come to assume we're always going to have in America and it's really amazing to watch you on second amendment issues you're staying right toe to toe with them and you're moving as quickly as they are which is such an important way to prevent derisions of our great freedoms. Congressman, I want to ask about one last thing. It seems like every day the story about the China spy balloon and the other incursions in our airspace has changed. We've gone literally about 180 degrees from what the Biden administration originally told us to where we are now. Now we know we were tracking the spy balloon long before it came into our atmosphere. And then we still let it go all the way across the country, waited to it finished its work before we shot it down. The changing story, the lack of transparency, how concerning is that for you? And what can the power of the purse maybe do to force intelligence agencies in the Biden White House to be more forthcoming and more honest in the future?
2: Well, I'll tell you, you're you're exactly right that this is very concerning for us in Congress, and it should be concerning for every solitary American across the country. Because here we have one of our arch enemies, China, uh, sending a surveillance balloon literally across our entire nation. And the excuse of the Biden administration was that um, oh, we can't shoot it down over the country because, you know, it might fall somewhere and hurt somebody. Well, we knew we knew days and days before it even entered the continental United States that it was a threat when it entered on the 28th of January and then re-entered on the 31st of January. We could have shot it down. I mean, before it even, the moment that that balloon went two feet into American airspace in Alaska, it should have been shot down. Uh, We had been tracking it. You know we'd been tracking it, just like we're tracking all these other, uh, quote, quote, unidentified flying objects um, that uh, have been shot down over the last number of days. Uh, This is, this is, I believe, more a test balloon than it is anything else. Uh, this once, this balloon is, um, has been sent our way to see how we respond to it. And, uh, and do we respond with strength or do we, do we respond with weakness? And I think you've seen the Biden administration has responded constantly with weakness on this particular um, subject. And, and they're soft on China. They're just soft on China and they can't be because they have proven time and time again they have stolen our intellectual property they have used it against us uh they have um, done everything they possibly can to beat us in trade and uh and they're sending you know tons of fentanyl across through mexico into the united states killing tens of thousands of americans every solitary day china is our enemy and we have to deal with them with an iron fist and um and the Biden administration just isn't doing it but but we will expose it and um and we will force their hand that way
0: there's a moment at the beginning of the 2020 campaign where Joe Biden looked into the camera and said China is not our competition they are not a threat they are not evil and he spent most of the campaign suggesting that Republicans from Donald Trump to members of Congress were xenophobic for even suggesting it that debate has flipped so quickly But I think the spy balloon, more than any other moment, might have been the crystallizing moment for everyday Americans. They've been bombarded with all this information. Joe Biden says this, Republicans say that but this felt like a Sputnik moment for the American public. How important is it for now that Republicans have significant attention to the American public to educate them on all the things that we've learned the Chinese are doing, whether it's TikTok and Huawei to the South China Sea and Taiwan to spy balloons and intellectual property theft? seems like the students in America are paying attention, a great opportunity to inform them, right?
2: Oh, it is. It is. But I think that you're seeing why Biden is weak on China and why he said those things during the presidential debate is because he's compromised. He's compromised on China. Uh, You can see that with the Hunter Biden laptop and all of the information that has come out of that. And we know that 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 is a, that, that laptop is, um, is truth and not fiction. And the oversight and the judiciary committees are going to um, continue to investigate that and expose that. And I think that um, that will continue to show that, um, uh, that Hunter and Joe Biden are, are inexplicably linked to China and the influence there. And that's really bad for the country, John. I mean, you have a president here that is making, in my a, a belief, is making decisions based on, um, on ties to a, a foreign enemy. And and he's our commander in chief. He's the president of the United States. And, and that should put every American citizen um, on alert that um, that our president is compromised. We have got to find out the extent that he's compromised. And we will do that through these committees through re- now that the Republicans are in charge. And, um, and uh, we will save our country uh, in that regard, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, such an important moment in our history and such an important debate. Congressman, it is such an honor to have you on the show. We always get great answers. We always get the cutting edge of where the solutions in our country are headed. And it's just an honor. We want to, I can't wait to get you back on real soon.
2: Thank you, John. Always good to be with you. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir.
0: God bless you. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye now. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, the FBI whistleblower, Steve Friend, here with some brand new news, including a quota system that the FBI is using to run up numbers on woke ideological priorities of the Justice Department. You're going to want to hear that right after this commercial message. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing
3: All right, folks, welcome back to the commercial break. As I mentioned at the top of the show, yesterday was a big day in the government accountability space. The FBI whistleblower, Steve Friend, spent several hours with the House Judiciary Committee going over the misconduct and the civil liberties abuses he witnessed inside the FBI as an agent uh, working on the January 6th investigation. As we also mentioned, he, because the FBI has refused to pay him for many months now, left his family without any income, uh, he has now... Retired from the FBI, left the FBI, and going and to work in the private sector. And he's going to bring us up to speed and all of that right now. We're very lucky to have retired agent Steve friend on that show too. Steve, great to have you back on. Huh? Thank you very much for having me, John. It's an amazing thing that the FBI has to lose one of its great agents because of the retaliatory nature. You, you just wanted to make the FBI better. You, you come forward and they squeeze you, don't give you any income for months, even though there's not a single. Official misconduct allegation against you, why did you make the choice?
1: Well, I think you kind of summed up my situation pretty clearly. Uh, yesterday, uh, I tendered my my official resignation from the FBI. It had been one hundred and fifty days of unpaid suspension. Um, you're correct. there had been no actual uh, disciplinary measures taken against me. The FBI had weaponized the security clearance revocation process in order to essentially try to uh, wait me out financially. Um, you know, I, I was in a position where I I'd, I'd, uh, had some personal savings and was able to survive. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I'm married, father of two small children. I, I have to, you know, support my family. And uh, I had an opportunity come uh, come my way from the Center of, for Renewing America. They offered me a, a fellowship. I, I uh, submitted the necessary paperwork to the FBI to seek outside employment, and they, they turned me down on that. So I thought that uh, you know I just had to take that opportunity and uh, and uh, you know continue my my efforts to reform the FBI
3: from the outside. Yeah, that's a great opportunity you now have, which is you can help Congress and others really get to the bottom of what's been going on there and fix it. Now, as part of the process, yesterday the House Judiciary Committee spent some time interviewing you. We know your story well because you were gracious enough to share it with us earlier. But tell us the top line, things that you sort of discussed with them and what sort of concerns did they, you think, leave the interview with? Well, it was really uh, two two separate tales.
1: Uh, from the Republican side, uh, you know, they they would, would go at me for about an hour and then the, the Democrats would have uh, an hour to respond. Uh, the Republicans seemed to be focused in on uh, the, uh, the nature of my, my allegations and, and my concerns and my disclosures that I made. Uh, they They asked me you know to go into the details about the the, the January sixth investigations and malfeasance concerning the case management and the indexing processes and as well as the abuses that have gone um, on with uh, bringing subjects into, into custody um as well as some other concerns that I brought forth about the uh, the integrated program management which is essentially the FBI setting metrics for itself, setting a quota and then pressuring its workforce to, to meet that quota. And, and you know, the, the downstream effects that that can have. So we really dug into the details there. And then on the other side, the, the Democrats kind of did the same thing that the FBI has been doing. And, and, and as opposed to uh, examining the, uh, the veracity of my claims, which would seem to be a logical thing to do to either prove or disprove them and move on they devoted all the resources into personally attacking me and uh, questioning my
3: motives for, for bringing my concerns forward. Wow. What a missed opportunity for them. Cause at the end of the day, a better FBI benefits Republicans and Democrats and independents and all Americans alike. And there's so much evidence that the FBI needs some fixing and really is unfortunate. I want to go to the quota thing. We've heard this from a lot of current and former FBI agents, a few of the whistleblowers so if they decide, if the FBI, as it has over the very overtly in public said, we're focused on domestic terrorism, and then the system d- is designed to manufacture the evidence to back up that claim, is that was sort of what you uh, were explaining in that in that case management system and the quota system you were seeing? Yes,
1: yes, essentially, uh, you know, the the FBI sets metrics for itself uh, at the headquarters level and then at the field office level each year. Um, It's a year-long cycle where they essentially assess what's going on through the year and then project outward what they anticipate achieving the next year. Uh, But like any organization, they want to meet those metrics, and there's always going to be pressures to to work smarter, not harder, to to juke the stats, if you will. And then also with the uh, the political wins, whichever way they're shifting, uh, and the FBI certainly uh, is a partner to to the administration nowadays uh, politically, um, it, it's convenient. So if there's pressure to have an intelligence product uh, quota met, then uh, they're going to try to generate that in the in the way that uh, the administration's going to be happy. And they're going to look for, you know, problematic opinions when it comes to being pro marriage, you know, pro uh, border sovereignty, uh, and and pro family. And then then all of a sudden you wind up with an intelligence product that is uh, designed to. You know, st- extract back from, from that and then find a predication for uh, an organization, and it looks like radical traditional Catholics, was, which is what uh, the report that was leaked last uh, week uh, showed.
3: Yeah, we did a lot on that. The FBI has finally recalled that, that report. As They said they recalled it. It's actually left the intelligence report system yet, but this is fascinating, because most Americans go in and think, listen, law enforcement wait for a crime, they investigate it, and they solve it, They don't go out trying to find that there may be a wave of crime that doesn't exist, but the quota system sort of puts that pressure on agents to imagine, conjure, or develop a wave of crime to meet the statistics. But what happens if it doesn't exist? What what if there isn't a domestic terrorism problem right now? That seems to be one of the big questions that your amazing testimony has raised, right?
1: Yes, that's right. Essentially, that's the the crux of my... Contention with the January 6th case management practices, where he took one incident and, uh, and opened separate cases for each individual who was alleged to have been involved at the Capitol that day, and then had them open around the country to generate this statistical narrative to make it look like domestic terrorism is on the rise and it's around the nation. Uh, and and that, that's just simply not true. Uh, the numbers just don't bear that out. You actually dig into the facts. And another aspect of this, uh, you know, that I, th- I think is worth noting is, even if crimes are uh, righteous and and worthy of being investigated, uh, the the quota system incentivizes you to change your tempo of your investigation. I I had personal experience where I was told to delay indictments of subjects because we'd already met our quota for the year. We wanted those numbers to count to the next fiscal year. So Agent Friend, would you mind waiting a couple months to indict that
3: subject? My goodness. That's just mind-boggling. Potential for public safety and and I've heard this from a lot of agents. And since the last time we had the pleasure of talking, a new whistleblower we got to interview, retired intelligence analyst George Hill, and he told the story of in Boston the pressure from Washington field office to open up 140 separate domestic terrorism cases on 140 people whose only predicate was they had gotten on a bus to come to Washington around the time of the Trump rally. No evidence they went into the Capitol. No evidence they committed any crimes. No evidence even that they were at the Capitol he told that story in such great detail that seems to fit the pressure narrative that you also experienced. They just want, they wanted as many numbers as possible as the terrorism. It didn't matter if there was a predicate or not, right?
1: Yes, that's right. And I, and when I brought my concerns initially to my frontline supervisor, the thing that he voiced to me was that my objection at this point was going to be a problem because there was going to be a whole bunch of cases that were going to be coming forward, you know, in the pipeline uh, now. And that the, uh, the January 6th investigation was going to expand from individuals that actually entered the Capitol to those who were standing on the lawn on the outside because the FBI and the DOJ is bound and determined to send a message here and devote all its resources into getting the, the greatest total that they can possibly get as far as convictions.
3: The analyst Hill told us that one, as one the Boston field office pushed back just like you pushed back because that's what the manual and the, the principles of being an FBI agent required that there were comments made like, don't you want to save democracy? Or this is about saving democracy, not solving crimes. Is that becoming a philosophy? Is there is there this sort of political rallying cry among people now, rather than the mission of just solving crimes, preventing crimes, and stopping terrorists? In my
1: experience, it's certainly within the, the ranks of the the management and the leadership structure of the FBI. It tends to be a lot more politically uh, left-leaning. Uh, certainly, my former special agent in charge of the Jacksonville Division's uh, special agent, Sherry Onks, uh, in my conversation with her, she she used a certain terminology about January 6th that, you know, to me, was revealing. I mean, she she talked about the individuals descending on the Capitol and, and attempting to seize our democracy. And and just when you hear that sort of language, as opposed to the more surgical terms that you would expect from somebody in a fact-finding right. mission, um, that's just allowing your, your political worldview to leak through which uh, is you know, one of the biggest mistakes you can make in law enforcement. It's it's the old dragnet, just the facts.
3: Yeah, exactly. That's what it was always supposed to be about, just the facts. That's the evidence. Everybody gets treated the same. In the Catholic memo that we've written about extensively, and now, at least I'm withdrawn by headquarters allegedly, there was a footnote. And in that footnote, the FBI analysts referred to women who were pregnant, not as mothers, but as birthing people, it seemed to be another virtue signaling from the leftist ideology or liberal ideology of you the supposed to people. Are there now focuses in, among some of the, the FBI agents to even adopt the woke language of the left rather than just use the, the, the common person language that we've all used for centuries? I,
1: I think so. Um, I think if you just you know, look at the, the last June when there was a, a, an LGBT, I don't even remember the rest of the acronym, uh, Pride Flag Display at the Jackson right. Steel Division that was that was proudly put up. Um, there was a, a personnel uh, decision in, in my uh, office where, you know, we had an intern come in who was a female, and the next day was a male, and we were all supposed to move along with that. And, you know, just being uh, somebody who was walked out the door as a security concern because they alleged that uh, I illegally or improperly accessed an employee handbook, but somebody could change their gender from one day to another, and, and that was okay as far as security concerns mm-hmm. went. I think that's a a big problem when you're looking at the FBI as being the premier law enforcement intelligence agency in in the country.
3: Wow. So literally overnight, this intern wanted to change their gender and there was instructions given to the Bureau to to accommodate that, is that correct? That's right. Wow. Amazing. Steve, there is a much larger picture now starting to emerge, two, three dozen whistleblowers for sure. There are others who are just getting information out that maybe aren't seeking official whistleblower status. There seems to be a larger portion, as you listen to the Republicans ask questions, you answer their questions, saying, where do you think this investigation will ultimately end? What do you think will be the big picture that Americans will get and try to fix as a result of all of these brave whistleblowers coming forward?
1: I think if this select committee does a good job of balancing uh, the uh, the emotional appeal, which they clearly went for in the, in the opening uh, hearing, and they and they had people talking about the good old days and, and, and their hopes for the future, um, but they counterbalance that with, with whistleblowers who have actual first-hand experience, because they can't fall into the trap of trying to follow the January 6th committee template and, and appeal solely right. to emotion. They have the benefit of having facts on their side. People have a limited bandwidth, especially those who are going to be interested in, in these select committee hearings. And you have to present them with firsthand experience on the on the outrages that uh, that have transpired over the last few years. And if you do that, you're going to uh, have a lot of ammunition when it comes to next fall um, and the budget negotiations, because uh, that's ultimately what what it has to be. It can't just be a few scalps of uh, you know, middle to upper level management, and then um, we're moving on to the next thing. Uh, there has to be major reforms within the FBI. Uh, and and that's going to come down to the budget negotiation process next fall when it comes to the new fiscal year.
3: Yeah, using the power of the purse to create the fix that the FBI hasn't been willing to impose itself. Steve, it's always an honor to have you on the show. It's an honor to know that there are good men and women in the FBI willing to step forward and try to fix this amazing agency and to blow the whistle on all this politicalization and ideology seeping into what should be a neutral law enforcement agency. But I want to thank you for your courage. Also thank you for your time today. This is a very important update. I'm sorry to hear that the FBI lost a really good agent, but it sounds like you're going to be doing some pretty important work going forward.
1: Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate the opportunity.
3: All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Justin News. So grateful you can join. So grateful you could be part of the conversation today. This is a significant and important moment in our history. China spy balloons, Russia, Ukraine war, stubborn inflation, growing budget deficits, enormous hypocrisy and corruption in Washington enormous gap in the expectation of what Americans thought they're going to get from the government what they actually are getting it. that's why we started just the news to get you the facts and let you make up your own mind and uh, I hope today we helped with that not only with the stories we mentioned at the top of the show but with two interviews with two newsmakers right in the know Andrew Clyde Congressman on House Appropriations one of the architects of how they're gonna how Republicans are going to use the power of the purse to force change in Washington, to impose the law that's already on the books on Joe Biden as he flaunts it at the southern border. And, uh, of course, the FBI whistleblower, Steve Friend, who was just interviewed by House Judiciary. So hope you enjoyed the show. It's a great honor to have a conversation with you every day, to have conversations with smart people like the guests we bring on here. Check out that story tonight on the toxic plume of hypocrisy that hovers over the Biden administration in its bungled response to the East Palestine train crash. A lot of new information will be in that story. Check it out. All right, folks, God bless you. Have a great night, and God bless this extraordinary country, as he always has. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News.